You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Sharice Davis and Representative Deb Padlin, the first Native American women elected to Congress, joined the Post to discuss the impact of a more diverse Congress, Native American history, and their legislative priorities. Let's listen. I'm Karen Tumulty, and I'm a political columnist here at the Washington Post, and we are so delighted to have you join us this morning for our conversation with Congresswoman Sharice Davids of Nebraska and Deb Holland of New Mexico, who two years ago made history as the first two Native American women to be elected to Congress. So welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here. Um, Congresswoman Holland, I'm going to have to begin with you here because your name is in the news quite a bit at this moment. Uh, there appears to be a groundswell of voices saying that, that you should be named Interior Secretary in the incoming Biden administration. We're hearing it from progressive groups. We're hearing it from Hollywood A-listers. Uh, <laughs> normally take all that much interest in who the interior secretary is. Uh, just this morning, Julian Castro tweeted, it is unconscionable that a Native American has never served in the cabinet. That should change now. So my first question is, are, are, are you being vetted by the Biden transition team? No, I am not being vetted. I mean, I think anyone who's being considered is being vetted to some degree, but, you know, I think they need to make the choice first before the vetting happens. Uh, what I'm doing right now is concentrating on making sure that our country can get past this terrible pandemic. I'll be very honest with you. This is, this is an issue in Indian country. When we talk about Indian country, one of the most um, challenged communities uh, because uh, they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the health care they need. Um, we are working feverishly on that. Uh, what I will say about the interior secretary position is that our country has come a long way. Uh, I am so proud that Sharice Davids and I became the first Native women uh, to serve in Congress. And it's, I think it's wonderful that our country is progressing in that manner, uh, that a cabinet level position uh, for, an, you know, filled by a Native American is, is, a, is a conversation that we're having right now. And could you talk a little bit about the interior department itself? Because I think a lot of people who live in cities, particular, think of the interior department as, you know, parks. What is it about that agency and its mission that has particular relevance to Native American communities? Sure. Well, uh, of course, the national parks are part of the Interior Department. Um, and Indian Affairs are also part of the Interior Department. And so uh, when we think about our public lands, I'm the chairwoman of the subcommittee on national parks, forests, and public lands. When we think about our public lands, and the Interior Department has, um, you know, manages all of those public lands, uh, we have to include Native Americans in the conversation because uh, this was all Indian country at one time. 
we've had several hearings during this term in Congress, uh, bringing tribal leaders to the table to tell us why uh, the cut, you know, the cutting off of big swaths of bears ears and grand staircase Escalante and why the blasting apart of sacred sites on the southern border to build uh, Trump's border wall uh, are, are an issue for Indian tribes. They deserve to be consulted when, when decisions about our public lands are made. And, um, and we've seen that play out in real time during this administration and what happens when you don't consult tribes. Um, another name that is being mentioned is Michael Connor, also a Native American, previously the Deputy Secretary of the Interior. Would it be any less significant, say, for, for that the Secretary's job to go to him? You know, what I'll say is that um, I worked extremely hard to make sure that Joe Biden won this election. And uh, I am going to support whoever President-elect Biden chooses for any cabinet position. It'll be my job in Congress or wherever I am to make sure that this administration is a success. And I'm committed to that. You know, both of you have spoken so eloquently about the power of representation. And both of you came to Congress uh, through some rather unusual routes. Uh, Congresswoman Davids, you at one point were competing in martial arts competitions, which reminded me of something funny Ronald Reagan once said, where he somebody said, how can an actor be a president? And he said, I don't know how you could be a president if you hadn't been an actor. I'm wondering if uh, <laughs> martial arts suddenly seems pretty relevant to where you find yourself right now in the House of Representatives. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's um, it certainly is true that uh, being a martial artist, having competed uh, in uh, both amateur and professional uh, mixed martial arts, it definitely got me ready for uh, what we're doing here and, and even running for office. And it's, uh, I think a lot of people probably think about the fighting aspect, but so much of it has to do with uh, just getting prepared, staying prepared and um, really showing up and doing the hard work that's required to, to be good at what you do every single day. And uh, when you're competing, everybody knows you got to have a coach and you have to be able to listen to the, the people around you who are trying to help you. And in this case, when you're running for office, you gotta listen to the people who you're there to represent. And I think that uh, there are lots of ways that martial arts got me, got me prepared for this. And I do, wanna, I do wanna make sure that everybody knows um, uh, I'm, I represent uh, the third district in Kansas. And um, I think in the opening, uh, it, was, it was Nebraska that I'm you mentioned, sorry. but uh, no, that's okay. And it's funny because I was actually thinking, um, you know, I'm Ho-Chunk, which is a tribe in Wisconsin, but uh, we are uh, very closely related to and our, um, uh, our, our people are um, all from the same people. There's the Winnebago in Nebraska. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to be able to mention that. My apologies. Um, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm glad I got to mention the history there. So at what point in your, in your life did you suddenly see your interests sort of and your calling switch over into politics? 
I think Deb has a much more interesting story on that. I'll keep mine short. You know, I was I was doing community and economic development work um, with uh, tribal uh, with tri tribal communities, um, and at one point had lived and worked on a on a reservation doing community and economic development work. And through that work, I saw the uh, complexity of the federal government and really wanted to just be more engaged, uh, learn more and figure out ways to contribute through that. And so I decided to be, uh, well, I applied to be a White House fellow and was uh, very fortunate to be selected. And uh, after, after that experience, I just realized how, how important it is to have different voices in the room helping to create policy. But Deb has a really interesting story. <laughs> well, well yeah. Congresswoman Holland, I'd love to hear that because one of the, the things that I've heard you mention before is the power of representation, you know, not seeing mm -hmm. other people like yourself in these jobs that you were 28 years old before it even occurred to you to think about going to college. So, so let's hear mm -hmm. your story. Right. Well, uh, I mean, that's not unusual in Indian country, right? Neither one of my parents graduated from college, so it wasn't something that was sort of handed down to me, you know, from a family. Uh, but, you know, in 2002, it was evident that the Native American vote made a difference in South Dakota. They helped the Democratic senator to be elected. And, um, and you know, election night, uh, they thought that he had lost. And by the time the votes from the Indian precincts came in the next day, uh, Tim Johnson had won his Senate seat. Um, that inspired me to believe that the Indian vote matters. And uh, so I just started, I, I love the clip about Cherise talking about voting uh, in, you know, when, when this um, live event started, because um, we have Native Americans, um, we didn't get to vote along with everyone else in New Mexico. Uh, we didn't vote, we weren't able to vote until 1948 when Miguel Trujillo came back from World War II after fighting for our country and realized that he didn't, he didn't have a say in our elections and he sued the state of New Mexico as he very well should have. Um, and so I just felt at one point in my life, I said, I just want more Native Americans to vote. And uh, that's how I started walking into campaign offices, asking for lists of Native Americans and sitting in a corner and making phone calls. That turned into me uh, showing up uh, in Indian country all over New Mexico. And uh, then I, I, I worked for the Obama campaign for both elections. And then I ended up running, I, I ran for Lieutenant Governor in 2014 because I thought that would inspire voters to get out to vote. And then um, decided to run for the state chair of New Mexico, the Democratic state chair. Um, so it was a long journey between, you know, the first time I, I started phone volunteering and the time I won my election and was sworn in to Congress with Sharice Davids. But um, I feel like it was a road that was, um, that was well-traveled. And, and your early career was as a small businesswoman. You had a salsa company and you were a cake decorator. I mean, it's, it's quite a leap from there. Absolutely. Well, the cake, the cake decorating, you know, I, that was my first job in high school was working in a, a, an independently owned bakery. I used to walk 
to the bakery every day after school. You know, my dad was, he was the dad who said, I'm not giving you any money. If you want money, you have to work for it. And so we all got jobs when we, you know, as teenagers. And, um, and so the bakery was my very first job. And, and even though I felt like my parents had taught me a work ethic, it was honed by Mr. Zinn uh, in the bakery. So, um, so I, I feel like, you know, just like Charisse's early training uh, in martial arts helped her, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the, my work ethic that was honed in the, in the bakery, uh, because that's a, that's a lot of hard work, uh, people don't realize. Um, that helped me as well, right? You, it takes a tremendous work ethic to run for office, no matter who you are. It's not an easy task. And, and so, uh, you know, perseverance, um, endurance, all of those things, they come into play um, when you're running for office. And I feel like every experience I've had during my lifetime has helped me, you know, to be where I am today. Well, so both of you come to office in January of 2019 on this wave of euphoria for Democrats. Uh, the, the most diverse house we've ever seen, more women than we have ever seen. But you end your first term confronted with a, an enormous challenge, which is the COVID-19 epidemic. And, and one that has hit um, communities and particularly Native American communities harder than most of the country. Could you talk a little bit about that? Why that is? And were you surprised? And do you think Washington has really understood the devastation? Well, so I'll, I'll start. Um, first, I think that um, there is there is a lot of educating that needs to happen around the structural issues that Native communities face, um, the long complex history of this country, and why we're in situations that we're in on um, in uh, tribal communities. You know, some of uh, some of the impacts that we're seeing, the disproportionate impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, have to do with uh, consistent underfunding of. Uh, the Indian Health Service or uh, investments in infrastructure in Indian country, uh, investments and funding for urban Indian health centers. There are, there are a number of things that have compounded over the years that have led to a point where uh, a pandemic that's really putting a stress test on lots of uh, places in our country has really highlighted and in some instances exacerbated the, the issues that we're seeing. And I think that um, when it comes to does Washington understand what's going on in tribal communities, um, I think the baseline is, uh, is no, but that what we've got is tons of tribal leaders out there um, and, and advocates from uh, Native communities showing up and, and trying to make sure that, that policymakers understand what's going on. And I think that one of the most amazing things about getting to serve um, in Congress alongside Deb and uh, as colleagues with members of Congress and peers is that we have the opportunity to really educate um, as much as possible to educate our colleagues and, um, and their teams about really 
why we're in the place that we're in and why it's so important um, to, to fulfill the responsibilities yeah. that the federal government has to tribal governments. And I think that, you know, I, I think that that's probably mm -hmm. one of the most impactful things about having uh, the first two Native women serving in Congress. Uh, Congresswoman Holland, I mean, wh what do you what do you think that Washington should have learned from from all of this? You know what I'm thinking about right now is the fact that um, when we were working on uh, one of our first, um, you know, COVID packages, that the administration didn't want to give any money to Indian tribes. Uh, we, you know, a, a lot of us got on the phone to say this needs to happen. Tribes need to have uh, their a, fu a funding package set aside for them so that they, because they know their communities better than anybody. And so we were able to get a, an $8 billion package in, um, in the CARES Act for Indian tribes. And, and everything Cherie said, yes, uh, Indian country suffers disparities because of decades and decades and decades of underfunding because the U.S. hasn't lived up to its trust res responsibilities. So uh, we have definitely have a long way to go. And what I'll say is it's, you know, this, this, uh, this term, the 116th Congress, we got sworn in during a government shutdown. Uh, and then, uh, you know, now we're dealing with the, uh, this COVID-19 crisis, um, both, both, you know, health and economic crisis that will take us a long time to remedy. So. Um, so it has been a challenge. Um, I, I really wish uh, right now that um, um, the Senate would understand how dire things are for the American people. It's, it's yes, it's Indian country, uh, but yes, it's communities of color across the country and folks who can't pay their rent and don't have health care and uh, it's it's a devastating uh, situation, and um, hoping that that they will come to their senses about it. So, so what do you think is the outlook here? As you know, Congress is under a really tight deadline now to to come up with another aid package to also to prevent the government from shutting down. Mm -hmm. um, are you optimistic or pessimistic that? the Republican Senate and the Democratic House and and the uh, president who hasn't conceded an election defeat are going to manage to get their acts together in all of this. I, I feel like I always have to be optimistic, right? I mean, I have to always feel like there is hope. If you if you lose hope, then what's the sense of of moving forward right so i'm going to remain optimistic i'm going to keep you know keep pushing uh these issues forward and um yes i it, it's it's amazing uh, i'm still amazed that um that the senate majority leader really doesn't want to get a covid package passed it's, it's astounding to me well, Congresswoman Davids, are you seeing any actual evidence or, or reason to be optimistic at this point? 
Um, well, you know, it's interesting when, when you were asking about whether or not uh, we're optimistic or pessimistic. And I think, um, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm an optimistic person. You have to be to, to be somebody who would run for, for Congress, I think. Um, but also hearing Deb talk about staying optimistic, I think um, optimism and uh, faith in people is uh, part of what we need more of. Um, I think that right now we have a situation where if we don't get a COVID relief package done, everybody suffers. And my hope is that our Republican colleagues in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell included, will see that it doesn't do anybody any good for him to hold out and not stay at the negotiating table. Everybody in this country is suffering right now. The pandemic has impacted our, our entire lives, every single person in, in some way or another. And that pain and suffering that's going on right now, uh, we can't solve every single thing with one coronavirus relief package, but we can bring some level of relief to people, whether it's unemployment relief, whether it's getting, uh, getting resources to our state and local governments so they can perform the essential government functions that they need to perform. And um, I'm, I will remain cautiously optimistic that we can get something done. We've done it multiple times before this. And I think we can do it again. Um, you know, Deb and I would not be here serving in Congress if uh, if we weren't uh, people full of hope and um, and optimism and and faith in other people. So, Congresswoman Davids, so what's your bet? Government shutdown tonight or not? No, I don't think we'll have a go. I don't think I don't think we'll have a, a government shutdown. You know, the, the, the great, there's great hope on the horizon as well, since we're talking about being optimistic in that vaccines are coming to market. Mm -hmm. And there has been a proposal among advocates for Native Americans in California that one of the criteria that, that should be looked at in deciding who gets to get the vaccine first is historic injustice. Do you think that that is a valid criterion at this point? California, of course, is a state that just turned down an, an initiative on the ballot to bring back affirmative action. Um, Congresswoman Holland, is how do you think the vaccine distribution should be? Should be well. Right. Well, of course, uh, you know, frontline workers. I think we can all agree on that, and and our you know, our elderly folks. I have an 85-year-old mother who I know is very vulnerable to this disease. Luckily, she's been in a safe place. Uh, but when you think about historic injustice, um, it is, it's still happening, right? So these are communities with, uh, who live in polluted areas. These are communities who haven't had health care. These are communities who uh, suffer from uh, from violence and and uh, racial injustice and and all of these things. So so yes, they're they they've suffered historical injustice, but they're still these communities are still suffering. Uh, what this pandemic has done is highlighted the disparities that so many of these communities 
have endured for decades and decades and decades. So uh, it just happens that yes, they're they're they are historically um, have have been historic suffered a historical injustice, but they are the most vulnerable communities. Uh, even still in the year 2020. So, um, so when we're thinking about how we distribute the vaccine, um, I absolutely feel like the most vulnerable communities absolutely need to be considered. And Congresswoman Davids, are you concerned that given the specific history of Native American communities, especially when it comes to infectious disease agents being brought into their midst. Are you worried that, that people might be afraid to take the vaccine, might be leery of something that comes to them from, you know, with the help of the United States government? Well, I certainly think that there's a, there's, there's a historic context here that um, is gonna be hard to avoid. And that means that what we have to do as, uh, you know, the federal government and then our, our state governments that are going to help distribute the vaccine um, and, and are going to be coming up with the plans, that we have to make sure that we are communicating as much as possible that uh, these vaccines have gone through rigorous uh, testing, that they've been approved through a rigorous process, and also that, um, you know, they're they're being distributed in an equitable way. And I think that uh, the more we can communicate with people about the effectiveness of uh, these vaccines, uh, the more likely it is that we're gonna, that, that we're gonna see uh, a large uptake. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling very encouraged that we're, that we are on, we're, these vaccines are on the horizon and that, you know, we're, we're gonna be able to start getting them distributed. But at the end of the day, the way that we build up trust with uh, tribal communities or any communities is by actually just showing up and listening and talking to, uh, to folks in, in communities that have been historically um, erased from, from all these processes. Well, in the few moments we have left, I would like to bring up a question that was posed by one of our viewers, Kathleen Healy of California, who wrote to us, we have talked this year about the importance of being allies to Black Americans. That should continue. How can we be allies to Native Americans? What, what uh, Congresswoman Davids, let's start with you. Um. Well, so first of all, I appreciate this question. I think that it's really important for uh, all of us to make sure that we're um, figuring out ways to show up for, uh, particularly for, for Black folks during this, um, at all times, but during this time where we're seeing, uh, Deb mentioned it earlier, the, the pandemic has exacerbated so many uh, long Standing issues that we have, and certainly the con conversation, the mainstream conversation that's going on right now about racial justice, um, is is super important. I we need it to continue so that we can have uh, a more just um, and fair uh, society. And I think when it comes to issues of um, allyship or showing up for tribal and native communities. 
there's a few things that I would encourage folks to do. One is to uh, make sure you're not thinking about uh, tribal uh, people, native folks, indigenous communities, um, and only in a historical context. It is very important that people uh, learn and understand the long complex history of this country, but it's also important to recognize that there are, uh, there are issues uh, that are going on right now, the murdered and missing indigenous women issue, um, issues around access to healthcare and mental and behavioral healthcare access, those kinds of things are really important that are happening right now. Uh, but there's also a lot of beauty and resilience and amazing stuff going on in tribal communities. And I, I just would encourage people to also think about that. Please don't only think about the, the negative issues that are impacting tribal communities, but also think about the beauty and resilience that is uh, present in our, our tribal communities as well. Mm -hmm. How about you, Congresswoman Holland? Mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing I'd echo everything that Cherie said, but uh, I mean, look, uh, this past election year, there were more Native American candidates running for offices across the country than, than I think any time before. And not just for Congress, for city councils and county commissions and house uh, legislature, you know, state legislatures and so forth. Uh, support Native American candidates, help, you know, donate money to their campaigns, volunteer for phone banks, uh, help make us uh, be representative of the communities that we serve. Uh, when more people are at the table, when Native Americans have a seat at the table, then we get to talk about our issues and we get to talk about all the things that Sharice mentioned. So, um, don't forget uh, that we need representation. And so there's always going to be opportunities uh, to help Native candidates to, to win their elections. Uh, and Sharice uh, also mentioned invisibility. That is, that's always an issue. Folks think, you know, they don't think about the fact that Indian communities are, are vibrant and here and, and, you know, that we deserve a seat at the table. So, um, so just make sure that that we are in the conversation and um, that's absolutely helpful. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today, but I'd really like to thank both of you for taking time in a very busy time to spend a few moments with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good to be we here. Hope to see <laughs> we hope to see you again. Join us Monday at 11 a.m. for our next Race in America conversation with former Attorneys General Loretta Lynch and Alberto Gonzalez on criminal justice reform and where we go in our, in our next, in our country's racial reckoning. I'm Karen Tumulty, and thank you for being with us today on Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.